song is uh, appropriate to lead us into the Word of God. That should be the prayer on all of our hearts as we receive Scripture. We're really receiving from the illuminating Word of God the vision of Jesus Christ, who's the author of the truth, and also he's the point of Scripture. He is uh, who we're wanting to see and longing to taste and see that he is good. Um, Before we go into the Word of God, I wanted to mention one other thing that is uh, a highlight in our church, and is sort of a, a flowering project before us. Have, have you noticed the Connection Center out here? We've kind of cut the lights on, and it's now a little walkthrough area. I think that's coming along nicely. I know we do these projects, and they, they take time to um, get all of it squared away, but there's some books in there now, and eventually there'll be some multimedia going and, and sort of an announcement loop that's happening on Sundays and throughout the week. Also, there's some nice swivel um, swiveling um, stools in there now. Uh, you can test them out, just don't hurt yourself as you, you sit there. But it's a nice little area to read books and to enjoy um, good truth. And, you know, these days where we're hearing a lot of error out there, it's good to be on the other side of that and soaking our minds in truth and to think rightly and to think biblically. So that's part of uh, what we've been giving towards. We're also going to be putting up the dark curtains um, pretty soon. We're about a month away from that. And if you notice along the beams here, we have um, lights that have been hung that are house lights. All that is going to be uh, um, happening and unfurled within, I, I would guess, about a month's time. And so as we enter the summer, we will have uh, better lighting in here so we can read the Word of God um, um, better. And hopefully in time, about, we're about 150,000 away from um, getting our multimedia, I mean our Multimedia Finish, which is our sound system, and it'll be a digital sound system so you can even hear better. So we want to see better and we want to hear better in our worship center so we can glorify God um, better. So let's open the Word of God now and uh, participate in worship by hearing the Word of God. I'm going to read verses 8 and 9 of Philippians chapter 4 to us to get us started. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is a familiar couple of verses, specifically verse 8. Many of you have memorized a version of verse 8 to help you in your life. And I've done it. You know, this version I've not memorized, but in another version I've memorized it and hidden it in my heart to help me to think rightly in a culture that oftentimes is shouting a message in contrast to that verse. Our culture, I don't know that it's getting dramatically worse as much as it's getting dramatically bolder in the message that it communicates. And it's surprisingly becoming bolder and bolder in a way that's trying to say that what's bold should really be normal. What I mean by that is, you know that this week, or I think it might have been the beginning or end of last week, there was an announcement that came out publicly where a NBA player Um, came out of the proverbial closet and said he was a homosexual. Now, we shouldn't 
kid ourselves to think that there aren't people that are, you know, in that kind of sensuality and sin and also involved in sports at the same time and that he's the first one um, that's been gay and an NBA player. But we should be um, noticing the fact that as a player at that level, he's received worldwide notoriety and actually worldwide applause for saying that he's a homosexual and a basketball star. Now, I don't want to give him, you know, more attention um, than he's already gotten by talking about this too much, but I just want to say, listen, this is pretty bold. Our culture is becoming more and more bold, where two presidents, you know, call him up and say, hey, thank you for doing that, and we're applauding you for doing that, and finally somebody's willing to stand up who is a participating athlete at that level and saying that at the same time, and that's such a wonderful thing. Uh, well, yeah, if you don't believe it's sin, I guess it's wonderful. I mean, that, the, the problem isn't in my heart that people are sinners. There are all kinds of people sinning in all kinds of ways, and we know that. And it, it causes us to have compassion on people and pity on people. We want people to be right with God. The problem with the boldness of that statement and the applause that he's received is that it's representing a culture that's lying to itself, that's in error. I mean, it's anti-biblical as a witness to our world. And the world is saying, and I heard this on a news report, that, you know, would that we could come to the day where an announcement like that isn't newsworthy. In other words... The goal of announcements like that is to add a new layer of callous on the hearts and conscience, consciences of our world around us. It's to make sin normal. It's to make anarchy normal. It's to, you know, sort of obfuscate gender and, and, and blend it together and say that it's not important for boys to become men and to become masculine and women to become, um, uh, girls to become women who are feminine. It's to blur the lines of any sort of gender distinction. It's to confuse our culture. This is the witness of our world, to confuse our culture where we don't believe it's important to think about procreation, where we're, we're just ignoring the fact that God created man and woman. We're supposed to sort of make Adam and Eve some sort of storybook myth that doesn't really matter. We're supposed to confuse boys and girls in a culture where they say, listen, just listen to your emotions and feelings, and that guides and determines the way that you're supposed to turn out. That's all lies. And the church has to stand up and clarify truth and say, look, lust is sin. And lust is what Jesus died for. And, and God is called Father. And Jesus is called the Son of Man. I mean, we need to be clear on gender because it helps us be clear on the very character and nature of God as a leader. I mean, Jesus, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't a blending or blurring between man and woman. Jesus came in the form of a man. He did. And man and woman are made as co-equal heirs of the grace of life. I understand that. And I understand that man and woman is made in the image of God. But the Bible clarifies that there is a clear distinction between a man and a woman. And all of this comes from thinking biblically. I mean, you need to be as bold a witness as a Christian and be willing to think bold boldly and Christianly. Why? Because our culture is telling you a lie. 
The scripture is the guard and the rule for how you must think. And you say, well, why? Why is that important? Well, it's important because when people believe lies, guess who they're believing? They're believing the devil, who's the father of lies. When you believe scripture and truth in terms of defining things like biblical masculinity and femininity, you know who you're believing? You're believing Jesus and his word over against Satan and his words and his message. There's two witnesses that are competing. There's the world's witness and there's the witness of Jesus Christ. And people's eternal destinies lie at stake in terms of following truth and following Christ or being pulled into how the culture thinks. And so this is a call this morning to think biblically, to think Christianly, to have the very mind of Christ. And you can have it. I don't want you to sell yourself short of having the mind of Christ. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2, we have the mind of Christ And I know that we struggle with our sin, we struggle with our flesh, we struggle with the pull to just, you know, sort of be anesthetized, to be numbed to the culture, to just soak it in and let it happen and let things go. But in a real sense, we should be shocked and appalled by our culture because it's anti-Christ. It's against Jesus, at least the message behind the culture. And we have to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want us to do that this morning. The, The church in Philippi, was struggling a bit. It was, it was sort of a best friend church of Paul, and he had a great heart for it, but he wanted the church to pull together in a turbulent time. And we've been talking about the fact that the unity of the church was at risk when he was writing this letter. And Philippians 1 through 3 is talking all about the gospel, and Philippians 4 really brings it together in a series of staccato-like applications. And all of these applications for how to live out the gospel are all pointing to, hey church, come together and be unified. Find common ground in the midst of a cultural fight. Philippians 4, uh, 1 is where Paul says, stand firm thus in the Lord. He's saying, dig in as a warrior athlete and don't be pushed down. Don't be fractured. Don't be pulled apart, but stand firm because you're all in the Lord. There's three uh, results of common ground we've been talking about. A strength of resolve, verse 1. And verse 2, strong relationships. Remember, Yodi and Sintichi were, were inside the church and they were battling about something. We don't know what the issues were, but we know that there was some relationship breakdown within the church. And so Paul's saying, look, you've got the same gospel, you've got the same Lord, you've got, you got the same friend, you have a common friend that can help you get together and make peace. And so he wanted common ground to to produce strong relationships. And then thirdly, common ground projects a strong witness. Now listen, that's what I'm talking about in terms of our culture. The culture has its witness. The culture is saying, look, forget biblical truth. Forget defining biblical masculinity and femininity. Forget defining what is right to live for. Live for the world. Live for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and boastful pride of life. That's the witness of the world. In contrast to that, the scripture says, have a witness for truth and understand things according to the word of God. And this is the the other fruit of common ground. We have common ground in our witness. 
Look at verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. We're, we're to have this consistent witness where we're rejoicing constantly. Life's not perfect, but I can have joy in the midst of imperfection. Verse 5, we're to have an outspoken witness. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Have a gentle, outspoken, consistent witness to the world. And you do this, verse 6 and 7, by what we talked about last week. By having joy that's based on prayer. Remember that? supplicating the throne of God, asking for God to help you. It's where you take your burdens and you cast them before the Lord and you keep throwing them off. And what does God give you back? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. So that we're talking about unity. We're talking about being together here. And we're talking about having a bold, outspoken, consistent, prayer-filled witness. And all of this is grounded in what we're talking about this morning, which is our thinking, our thinking. The war is won in terms of your witness, in terms of how you think. Your life, your prayer life, your joy, your witness before the world comes down to how you think. And how you think determines how you feel, how you act, how you talk, what you do. It all comes down to how you think. Because your thinking determines what you value. And what we're talking about here is putting on a Christian mindset. It's getting into a groove in terms of how you think. It's thinking Christianly. It's thinking scripturally. It's thinking biblically at such a level that it crowds out the world's appetites and the world's mindsets. It's putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and making no provision for the flesh. It's putting on Christ. It's having the mind of Christ. It's Philippians 2. Have this attitude which was also in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that you can think like Christ? Because that's what Paul is calling the church to do. And I believe that's what the Lord is calling our church to do. Calling you to do is to think like Jesus. You can do it. It takes some work though. Let's find out how to do this. Joy that's based on thinking. Verse 8. Finally, brothers... He's bringing things to a summary here, to a conclusion, to a wrap-up. Look at the end of verse 8. This is the command. The command is, and it's an imperative, think about these things. He's calling the church to think. He's calling the church to use its brains. You've got to use your mind to grow. You've got to use your mind to be a witness for Christ. You've got to think not check out, it's thinking. This isn't some kind of Christian psychotherapy that I'm promoting this morning, by the way. I'm not talking about some sort of weird escapism where we just woo, go out into the, you know, the netherworld. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about taking the garbage that's stuck in your brains from the culture, throwing that out, and putting on Christ in your thinking. I'm saying change the filter, okay? You got a bad filter, that's the garbage filter. You throw that out and you put on Christ filter, which is the scripture. It's replacing, it's thinking, it's engaging. It's very easy to say, I got to relax my brain. I worked it really hard today. And so now you just take the garbage intake from the TV or, or the internet or your phone or from whatever or magazines. I'm just going to relax and put that in. But I'm saying, look, throw that out. And, and let this be the new filter for your thoughts. And in doing that, when you hear those messages like I've talked about this morning, you'll go, that's not true, that's a lie, this is truth, this is how you're supposed to think. 
And in doing that, you'll be a witness for the world. All right, what does the word think mean? The word think is from the Greek word logizomai. It's where we get our word in English, logarithm. This is logarithm is a mathematical term. It's the idea of thinking at a level like you're weighing through a very hard math problem. This is not easy thinking. It's hard thinking. Going through verse 8 is, is something that you have to do meditatively, which means you have to do it slowly, carefully, methodically, deliberately, in a way that will affect your life and the way that you live so that you'll live Christianly. Okay? It all starts in the mind. All starts in the ability to think hard about each one of these categories here. One child, he kind of did a redo on the nursery rhyme prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep, right? He, he said it this way. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my brain to keep. It's a good word. Keep our brains in check with the word of God. It's embracing exalted Thought patterns. That's what Paul is talking about. Embracing exalted, elevated, high thought patterns, holy thoughts. The mind is uh, sort of a crossroads point in your spiritual life. If you let your mind go, you're going backwards. You have to swim upstream with truth to move forwards to Christ. And if you've ever, you know, been involved in reading good literature you, you're familiar with John Milton who wrote Paradise Lost it's a classic written in the 1600s he was a Puritan poet and he said this about the mind he said a mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven think about that something as beautiful as heaven in our minds can be turned into hell That's when we hear things that were made beautiful by God, like the union between a man and a woman, corrupted. That should be fingernails to a blackboard in your heart where you're going, oh God, please let us not lose sight of what is right and pure and holy. Please let us not fall prey to the perversions of this world. Let us have compassion and pity and heart and move towards people who are falling prey to the sensualities of this world and give them the gospel, give them the lifeline and compassion and pity so that people will come to Christ. It comes with our, it begins and ends with our thinking. It's a challenge to have the mind of Christ. You know, when you think about your own heart, it is a fearful thing, isn't it? You go, man, pastor, you don't know my own heart. You don't know what I'm swimming in, what I'm struggling with, what, what's going on in my life. Well, I don't have to know what's going on in your life and in your mind because guess what? Jesus does. It's kind of a scary thing to think about how much Jesus knows. Guess what? He knows everything that's going on in your heart. The good news is God loves you anyway. He loves me. And we can't lose God's love. Nothing can break us from God's bond that he has committed to us and sealed it in his own blood. But the Bible does give us a fearful word about what he knows. Hebrews 4.13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account So all of the anger that turns into heart-level homicide, 
and all of the lust that turns into heart-level adultery, all of those things are clear before God's eyes. He sees in our hearts. He knows what's going on. That's what Jesus approached and addressed in the Sermon on the Mount. He knows your heart. So the battle is, is waging there, and it is incumbent upon you and me to take what's in our hearts and in our minds that's garbage and say, I'm going to put that off and replace it with truth. What does that mean? Well, it's a commitment to read the Word of God, and guess what? Reread the Word of God. You know, I've, I'm not someone, and this might, you know, make some of you who are Bible memory people, you know, like go, what? I'm not someone, I have disciplined myself to look through cards before and memorize Scripture, but I'm more of the guy who reads the Word of God, and, and I've read it over and over again, and read it to study it, to teach it for so long that a lot of Scripture is in me, and I don't even know when it gets in me. I don't have a methodical Bible memory plan. I don't do that. Actually, by teaching the Word of God and imbibing the Word of God and hiding it in my heart through study, it just sticks in there. And oftentimes when I quote Scripture while I'm preaching and doing it from memory, I don't even remember that I memorized it. It just comes out. That's the process of hiding God's Word in your heart by reading it and rereading it deliberately, carefully, and I can't emphasize this enough, slowly, a lot of people have Bible memory plans and, and Bible reading plans. I appreciate those. I always try to read through the Bible and the plan starting in January, and then I stop sometime around March. It, it just, it's hard for me because I don't read the Word of God that way. I mean, I, I appreciate reading the Bible through in a year, and I think that's important to try to do some. But more importantly to me is reading the Bible in a way that it affects my heart, that it matters to me. And the way that I typically get there to the point where it's affecting me is when I feel like it's res- I'm responsible not only to have it affect my life, but to come through me to someone else. So if you want to read and study the Bible in a way that will change your life, guess what you got to do? You got to teach it to somebody else. You got to make disciples. That's been my secret to Christianity and growth is making disciples. And I, I do it every week of my life. You know, I'm freed up to study the Word of God, but it's always a sacrifice for me to study. There's always other things I could do and, and um, you know, put off the studying of God's Word. But every week of my life, I'm finding myself committed to soak in the Scripture so that it'll impact my heart and will come clearly to you. And that's what I would challenge you to do. Be a learner, be a studier, but study for your own heart and study for the, the soul and sake of somebody else. A child, a kid, a grandkid, a friend, a family friend, a Bible study, a coffee shop time, a, a Sunday school class. I mean, teach the Word of God. The people that know their Old Testaments are always the children's Sunday school teachers, right? That have taught through the Old Testament where they've got to grasp it at a level that they've got to make it clear to a first grader. That's the person who knows the Word of God. And it's that process of studying and soul-soaking and thinking and deliberating at a level that you're imparting it to others. That's when you are at a level of thinking that's legizomai. It's where you go from paradise lost to paradise regained in your heart. Barclay put it this way, it's coming to the place when you can't stop thinking about Scripture. It's replacing. You've heard the garbage in, garbage out. Well, Scripture in, spiritual fruit out. 
It's meditating. The kings of the Old Testament had to meditate on the word. You know what they had to do? They are required or were required in Deuteronomy 17 verses 18 to 20 to take their own parchment, their own paper, and make a book out of it and write through the Old Testament law. I'm sure it was Genesis to Deuteronomy. They had to write through that whole thing in their own hand writing so that it would go inside of them. And the context of that was that kings had to put off covetousness. They couldn't want what other people had. They couldn't um, take for themselves several wives. That was, that was against God's word. And so the way that God staved off those kinds of power desires that kings could have just taken for themselves was for them to write out their own copy of the law of God. And then it says in particular that they write it out so that they will fear God. That's the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit where a king's heart was to be transformed by truth. Joshua had the same um, command and commitment. Remember, he took over for Moses. Moses was the, you know, the George Washington of Israel. He had led the children of Israel through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, but um, went against God's ways and word and wouldn't speak to the rock, but smack the rock. And so he was forbidden from going into the promised land. And so Joshua was taking over to lead these millions of people across the Jordan. And in Joshua 1, God said, look, let not the word of God depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate, it, meditate on it day and night, and then you, you will have success in the land. It's meditation. It's doing this. But, you know, Philippians 4 takes this not at a level of just mechanical memorization, Removing from Bible intake to Bible thinking. That's what you have to get from this sermon today. You've got to understand, I'm not calling you to join a, you know, a Bible class per se. That's a great thing to do. I'm not calling you to go after an online Bible degree this morning. I'm not calling you to, to read your Bible more in per se, or to listen to sermons more, per se. You can do all of those things. What the scripture is calling us to do is to think biblically and think through the grid of scripture about your life and your world where your world becomes God's sanctuary to you. It's replacing the base things of this world, the bad values, with God's values. Base thoughts for lofty thoughts. It's where I was, uh, you know, trying to apply this yesterday. I've got my kids, and I'm sort of this single dad right now with Judy back east. And, you know, I can think negatively about the work of children and child care and conflict resolution that happens, you know, happens sometimes in my life, right? And, or I can look at it as a blessing, as a privilege. I can focus on the smiles of my kids and, you know, the, the good things that happen. We went to, to Target, I don't know, the other day I saw a couple people from church and they had, uh, you know, Carson and Brady wanted umbrellas so desperately. So I just thought, okay, I'll buy them the $3 umbrellas. So they get those. And by the time we had come 20 feet out of Target, Carson had already broken his umbrella. You either go, man, this is a horrible thing. Or, you know, you look at these as humorous things and enjoyable things. You know, you look at, you know, the smile on your kid's face and you go, you know what? Thank you, Jesus for the good things in life. Thank you for the things that inspire me. That's what Paul is calling the church to do, to go lofty, to look at creation and not be bored with it where you see the same things around Alaska, but to go, you know what, wait a minute. 
I don't need to be used to these things. I need to enjoy the splendor of God that is surrounding me. And I need to have my heart exult because of creation. It's important to do. It's looking at the world through the gospel glasses. But it's more than just scripture memory. Let me show you this with eight categories from verse 8. Paul says, finally, brothers, here's the first category, whatever is true. Now, he uses the word whatever, and I know in our culture, you know, the the teenager thing to do is go, well, whatever. This is the opposite of that. The word whatever here is talking about whatever reaches the standard of the category Paul is talking about. For instance, he says, whatever is true. He's talking more than just whatever is truth or whatever is the scripture, he's saying, think about things that are true, things that are right, things that pass muster with scripture. It isn't true, for instance, that same-sex marriage is a good thing or something that should be celebrated in our culture. That's error. And so what you do is you go, okay, that's error. I have pity pity and compassion on people who are involved in sexual immorality. I want the gospel to transform their lives. Um, People need Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, for the sanctity of human life and marriage and the joy of your creative design. You, you, You are able to discern what's error and put on truth and have your heart lift in hope and encourage and enjoy towards what's truth and what's true in our world. You've heard the academics, the Christian academics say, all truth is what? God's truth. All truth is God's truth. Anything that is true, anything that is genuine, anything that is genuinely real, anything that is eternal and is going to last, that's what we're to focus on. We don't focus on, you know, The idea that, you know, if you have more things or have more great experiences, then you're going to be happy. You don't focus that way. You go, no, I'm happy because I'm in Christ, because I love the Lord, because I'm standing in grace. I've been forgiven of all of my sins. I'm happy because my conscience is clear. I'm happy because I can love people. I'm happy because I can build relationships with people. I'm happy because I can make disciples. That's thinking in terms of truth. You're thinking in terms of things that matter. It's thinking in terms of aletheia, truth. Secondly, whatever is honorable. What reaches the standard of honor in your life? The word honor is the same as the word dignity or whatever's serious. I remember as a Christian, um, a new baby Christian, hearing someone say, you know, I love the idea of being serious as a Christian. And I just went, Ugh. you know, like, eh, that's, what, what do you mean serious? I don't want to be serious. But, uh, but, you know, I learned to value seriousness as I matured in the Lord. The idea of concentrating and focusing, the idea of having quiet time with the Lord became important to me. Seriousness, where you're sober-minded about eternity, heaven and hell. You're sober-minded about the state of your soul. You're sober-minded about communicating truth to other people. You're sober-minded about using your gift in the body of Christ. You're sober-minded about giving part of your money towards the work of Christ. You're sober-minded about what you're saying or not saying. Honorable. There's a lot of base things in our culture. A lot of 
media in our culture that comes very quickly to us, right? You know, you're watching a show, it's on the Nature Network, and you're with your kids, and all of a sudden, boom, it goes to just a base commercial where you're assaulted with garbage and grunge, okay? Right? And you're supposed to take that seriously and change the channel or, or tell your children, look, that's wrong, that's not true, or you need to learn in your heart not to want that, but to want Jesus. That's being honorable. That's working in a context of seriousness for the sake of your kids and your family, for the sake of your own soul. William Barclay, he, he put it this way. He said, in the Greco-Roman culture, the word honorable or semna was used of their Greek gods that they would bow down to, the statue worship and idolatry that was found in their temples. Their temples were called honorable or semna. And he said that in terms of a Christian hearing these words in a Greco-Roman culture, it would mean that a Christian is moving through his life as if the whole world were a temple of God. You know, when you begin to look for what's serious and what's honorable and what's holy and what's truthful, you can get inspired in this world. Yes, we've got a culture that's lying to the world. We've got presidents who are applauding sin, you know, publicly. We've got that. But when you begin to see people through the mind of Christ, you can love people. You can pray for people. You can reach out to people. You can see the creation of the world around us and be inspired by that and encouraged by that. I remember um, going to the Grand Canyon. You know, speaking of all the beauty we have here, the Grand Canyon uh, is one of the places that's comparably beautiful in terms of what I've experienced to Alaska. And I remember going to the Grand Canyon and just being struck by that, going, wow, look what God has done. I remember what I would do is I would turn around this way and look at the trees and go back to it and go, wow, it's unbelievable. You know, it's incredible. Well, the whole world needs to be like that to us. Yes, there's negative things and lies of the devil and things that are distracting to us. And there's a media culture that wants to take our focus off of God and make us just in this fast-paced sort of high-fast moving culture and mindset where we kind of just get um, dulled to spirituality. But instead, we need to go, no, the world is God's world. And this is his sanctuary. And I can love all of the people in it. And I can give my heart to things that are true and things that are honorable. That's what Paul is saying to do here. You know, our culture is spiraling and it is getting more bold in terms of its negative witness. But you know what? Cultures have cycled through throughout the millennia, throughout the ages. They've, they've gone bad and, and sort of, you know, there are times that, you know, it's kind of the sine wave up and down. And our culture is spiraling right now. But who knows what the Lord is up to? Who knows what, what he'll bring in terms of our culture? And things might rebound a little bit. And the church needs to stand up now and, and look for and promote things that are true and honorable. Thirdly, things that are just, dekaya. This is things that are righteous. This is where you see injustice in the world and you're, you're struck by that. And you go, you know, I want, I want to focus on correcting injustices. I never want to rip somebody off. I never want to do somebody wrong. I, I don't want to be a mooch. I want to be a giver. I want to be a doer. That's focusing on justice. It's, it's you're wanting things to be right. You reach out to the person that's in need because of the gospel, because this is your focus. Fourthly, things that are pure. This is the same word as looking for holiness. Do you love holiness? Our culture says don't love holiness. Don't love purity, love sensuality, love the darkness, 
You know, the culture wants you to have sort of this duplicity in your life and in your heart. You look good on the outside, but on the inside, everything's fair game. Now, in your heart, you should have unmixed purity and holiness, which comes from focusing on holy things. You think about holy things, you think about good things, and you replace that for the bad things. Fifthly, things that are lovely, things that are beautiful. This is beauty in the widest sense. Beauty in art, beauty in culture, beauty in the world around us. You know, I would just say this. I mean, don't be ashamed as, a, as an Alaskan, you know, who's strong and rugged and tough to also enjoy beautiful things. Don't be ashamed of the flowers. Don't be ashamed of the beauty of, you know, a singing bird. Don't be ashamed of, you know, going to hear, you know, um, beautiful music. Don't be ashamed to go to a play or to um, go to an art museum. I mean, God has given us creative people to inspire us, and it takes time to do that. It takes work to put yourself in front of things that are beautiful. But we are called as Christians to glorify God by embracing beauty that's around us, and it takes just it takes slowing down. Are you willing to slow down in your thinking? I think a fast-paced mind is more susceptible to sin than someone who's thinking and being slow in their thinking. There are times where I will write out my sermons, you know, with a pen. That's what I've been doing lately. And I'm doing that so that I'll slow down and think about what I'm going to put down on my note page and be more deliberate, more thoughtful, and more meditative about it for the sake of my own heart. It's not just slapping things together. It's slow, meditative, thoughtful, heart-changing thinking. It's important to do. Sixthly is looking for things that are commendable. What's commendable? Commendable means it's anything in your life or in your world that's around you that you could commend or affirm to your children. Anything you could affirm to a friend, to a Christian brother or a sister. This is commendable things. Things that aren't corrupted. Things that aren't filled with grunge. And then seven is if there is anything, verse eight again, the seventh thing, if there is anything of excellence. This is things that are virtuous. You know how the Bible says to build people up with your speech? Anything that builds up is excellent. Anything that's worth giving towards is excellent. Anything that where you're looking at someone and you want to build them up, you want to inspire them, that's excellence. And anything worthy of praise. You know, we're supposed to glorify God in everything we do, even as menial a thing as eating and drinking, we're to glorify God. When I gave my children this morning um, frozen chocolate chip egos, which is what single dads do to survive, you know, that should be to glorify God. And that's part of the any and everything. It's, you, you, you have a praise time. You pray over your meal. And God, you know, he needed to bless that meal, right, for lack of nutrition. But you just, you, you give to people. You build them up. And you look for ways where the power of God is on display, where you notice something. You notice somebody's heart is softening, or you notice somebody is taking a step towards God. You notice that somebody gave a little bit more of themselves to Jesus, and you go, you know what? That's worthy of praise. I'm going to praise God for that. 
I'm going to praise the Lord. You have to look for those things. You should write those things out, journal about those things. Talk to people about things that are worthy of praise. There's a lot of things you can talk about, but you have to deliberately, carefully, slowly, passionately affirm things that are worthy of praise. Take slowing down. Slow down your mind. Be careful. Deliberate these categories so that you will put these things into practice. That's exactly what Paul calls the church to do. Let me invert these categories real quick before we go to verse 9. Let's just change it up for a second. Whatever is untrue, whatever is dishonorable, whatever is um, injustice, whatever is unpure, whatever is unlovely, whatever you can't commend, whatever is not excellent, whatever is not worthy of praise, let's just invert it. Don't think on those things, right? So the opposite is think about these things. But it's not enough to just think. You've got to live it out. You have to think at a level where you learn it to where you'll end up living it. That's what Paul says. And Paul puts himself out there. He puts himself out there as the model, as the example. Christianity that affects people's lives is a Christianity where you're allowing yourself to be vulnerable. You know, when you teach or you say, hey, would you like to meet with me? You know, someone could say, absolutely not. I wouldn't want to meet with you. <laughs> Think about that. I mean, you're kind of wanting the gush moment. No, I don't want to meet. Uh, would, would you like to learn? From, well, no, I don't want to learn from you. Christianity is being vulnerable, and that's what changes people's lives. And Paul put himself out there as the example. And in verse 9, he gives the, the command surrounding the same word. He said, think on these things in verse 8. And look at verse 9 practice these things. You see the repetition there? Think about it, and now practice it. How are you going to practice it? Well, practice through imitation. You know, we, we have a joyful witness that's based on thinking in verse 8 and verse 9. We have a joyful witness that's based on imitation, imitating. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice. Look at that. Learning Receiving, hearing, and seeing. How is Christianity passed on from one person to another? What does it look like to have the mind of Christ and that affect your life? Well, you have to learn it from godly people. I mean, if you put yourself around people who meditate on Scripture, who when you talk to them, scriptural things and Jesus things come out of their heart and their mouth, then it will have an effect on you. It will change you. It's one thing to read about being a godly person. It's another thing to watch it lived out in a person's life. That's where it happens. Look at the, look at the words here, learning and receiving. Receiving. Paul literally said, look, I'm going to, Matthew 2.0 you. I'm going to make you a disciple. I'm going to make you a learner. I want you to learn. How? Because I'm coming alongside you. The language here is paralambano. I'm coming alongside you and I'm giving to you my life and I'm showing you how to live this out. You got to be willing to put yourself out there, come alongside somebody and build them up as a disciple. You know, you became a disciple probably because someone at some point deliberately invested in you, came alongside you, taught you, and then showed you how to live it out. That's what Paul is saying. By hearing and seeing what you've heard and seen. The best way to learn about how to live the Christian life is hearing somebody in terms of how they talk and watching someone somebody in terms of what they do in front of you 
And the best way to teach somebody and coach somebody is to tell them things and to live out the Christian life in front of them. You say, hey, come with me. Come on this errand with me. Let me show up. Let me, let me redirect my life where it includes other people because I want to affect them in terms of Christ. You know, you might not be the person who is the seed-sowing witness where you go up to somebody who's never heard of Christ before and you start to explain it to them, but you might be the person who comes along somebody who looks a little bit downcast, who's struggling in the Christian life, and you say, hey, can you come with me and, and enjoy yourself in my life a little bit, come to this meal or get in my car, and let, let's talk about Jesus as we do something together. You might be that person, and guess what that is? That's fulfilling also the great commission of making disciples, where you're teaching people with your life. It's the practice. It's the thinking. It's not enough to just think about these things. You've got to live it out and put it into practice. And what's the promise that comes from that? Look at verse 9. And the God of peace will be with you. Remember, Paul talked about the peace of God in our lives when we cast our cares upon the Lord, when we, when we throw off the burdens in prayer, and we, we receive peace for that, right? Well, the peace that comes into your life is really the presence of God in your life. That's Philippians 4. That's verse 9. If you are willing to think lofty, holy thoughts that are based on Scripture, if you're willing to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're willing to have the mind of Christ so much so that you actually allow it to work out in your daily living, guess what's going to happen? You're going to have peace in your heart. I mean, having holy thoughts gives you a clean conscience. And when you have a clean conscience, the barrier of sin is, is sort of dropping Your conscience is calmed and quieted, and then you realize that somebody's right there with you. Now, Jesus, he never left you. He never forsook you. He's been as near to you as he's always been. But when your thoughts, when your mindset is holy, and you realize that the author of holiness is right there in your life, he's with you. He's loving you. He's shaping you. He's making you more like him. The trials in your life begin to make sense. The clutter in your life is clarified. You realize what really matters. You're not being drawn away or lulled to sleep by the culture. And you see that Jesus is with you. He's loving you and he is supreme in your life. He's most precious to you. He fills your heart with joy and you have peace because you know God is with you. The peace of God which which surpasses all comprehension, all understanding. It's guarding your heart because Jesus is present with you. Do you believe Jesus is with you? Well, perhaps your faith has been challenged because you've been intaking garbage into your mind. You've been drinking poison. You've been buying the lies. You've been told that wrong is right instead of focusing on the author of truth and enjoying the peace and presence of Christ. That's what we need. As we turn to the Lord's table, let's be reminded about what this Jesus has done for us. And as the men come forward, let me pray and let's put ourselves in a a position and posture.